0: Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. When was the last time you just let yourself laugh? Um, Like truly laugh, like just burst out, crack up, collapse on the floor, roar, howl, split your sides, maybe wet yourself, or nearly there, laughing. It's probably not as often as you'd like to, right? It's... There's something that creeps up in life and responsibilities take over and we kind of stop letting ourselves laugh. Uh, When we were out in BC and we were staying with the family we were staying with, um, man, we had a great relationship with them. And I loved um, just kind of taking jabs at the dad and really just um, getting him going, kind of like I do with Chris. And uh, when I left, I I made him a shirt with my face on it and it said, hashtag thankful for Kevin. Um, so now he, he uses that to wash his motorbike. And, and uh, it, just spending time with them, though, and just kind of going over the old stories and, and sharing new stories and just spending time laughing, we all kind of just sat there and said, Man, when was the last time we just let ourselves laugh? And even this past week, I had the opportunity to spend a day with the church planning director, Bren Stacy, and Pastor Steve from our sponsor church at Gateway. Uh, we went away for the day, and as they picked me up and drove me home, though, we just kept talking about different comedians that we love right now, and we talked about the show Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld, and we were just talking about some of our favorite jokes, and man, when I got home, my, my sides were hurting, because I was just laughing so hard, and it, I'm, I'm wrestling as to whether or not I should share the one that just got me so much. <laughs> it, it, it's PG. Uh, I, <laughs> they, they were just trying to... I guess it came from one of the episodes, and it, it was how you can get a laugh in as few words as possible. And then one guy just mentioned, man, the worst time to have a heart attack is during a game of charades. And I don't know, the image of that, just I could not get that out of my head because I'm competitive. And if I saw someone having a heart attack, I'd be screaming at them trying to get the right answer, not even thinking about it. And, oh... But if you've been around the church for any length of time, you'll also realize that sometimes we just begin taking ourselves too seriously. And I think I even wrestled with this a bit in my sermon last week because I was kind of driving home some points, and then I'm like, wait, I'm actually excited about what I'm sharing. But the, the most clear example I've experienced within the church was when I was at a church, um, I was doing an internship, And there was a fellowship hall just off the side of the sanctuary. Now, it was a gym, because it had gym floors and a basketball net on each end. But you had to call it the fellowship hall, because we couldn't confuse a gym and fellowship. So, young families started coming to the church, kids started playing in the fellowship hall, and balls started coming into the lobby or the foyer. And the big concern at the board meeting was how do we keep balls from from getting into the, the foyer and how do we keep them in the fellowship hall? So I suggested, well, right now they're being stored on the other side of the church, so they have to be brought through the lobby into the fellowship hall. What if we just store them in the storage cabinet off the side of the fellowship hall? You would have thought that I brought up heresy because I was quickly reminded and scolded that it was voted on in the late 1980s that the balls would be stored on the other side of the church. And it's not up for discussion, nor is it up for another vote. And I'm just thinking, what? We, we've lost our joy. We've lost something when the policies and the rules get in the way Of people get in the way of just being able to see the joy on kids faces and connect with their parents and believe it or not it's a a true story and it happens more often than we probably care to admit but talk about people taking things too seriously so don't get me wrong there there definitely is a time to have some some rules, some policies. But if they're never up for discussion, if they're valued more than people, then I truly believe we've lost our focus. And when we lose our focus on what truly matters, then we quickly lose our joy. Joy is the second fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists. Joy is the first miraculous sign in the Gospel of John. As Jesus turns water into wine. And I believe that joy is not a requirement. It's a result of being in God's presence. It's not something we have to work up, we have to muster up, we have to hang on to. it. It's a result of being in God's presence. For the past several weeks, we've been working through a series called Summer in the Psalms, Finding God in the Wilderness. And we've looked at the Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, Psalms of new orientation. And wherever you might identify yourself within that paradigm, I believe that not only can we find God in the wilderness, I believe that we can find joy in the wilderness. Even if everything seems turned upside down, It's because joy is a result of being in God's presence. You see, the psalm that we're going to be looking at tonight, it's one of the psalms of ascent. The psalms of ascent are 15 psalms going from Psalm 120 to 134. And tradition says that each of these were pilgrim psalms, psalms for the journey. And they were sung as God's people approached Jerusalem for one of the major worship festivals. And another tradition suggests that the ascent was actually the 15 steps going up to the temple, and that these psalms were sung by choirs of Levites. But regardless of how exactly they were used or sung, the bottom line is that these psalms were prayers. They were prayers not merely asking God to do something for them. They were prayers that remembered God's acts and sought his presence for today and the days ahead. Praying, and in this case specifically, praying the Psalms, helps us posture ourselves to encounter God's presence. You may have experienced that sometimes you go to God in a time of need. That's probably everyone's reaction. God, help me. Perhaps your prayers have even just become a little rote and mechanical, something you just do before you eat meals or before you go to bed. Or perhaps you just bring the to do list that you've made for God. You bring it to Him in your prayers. But ultimately, prayer's not about getting God to do something for us or to get Him to change. Prayer is about God changing us. Our circumstances might not change. But when we go to God in prayer, we allow Him to change us in the midst of our circumstances. Prayer is posturing ourselves to encounter God's presence. And I wish I could remember the person who tweeted this. Um, I usually take screenshots so I can go back and, and recall it, but I couldn't find it. But he said something along the lines of, When we're in a boat, throwing our anchor to the shore... And we begin to pull. Do we pull the land toward us or do we pull ourselves toward the land? And he said, that's a lot like prayer. And I thought, man, what an awesome image. That we're not, we're not trying to get God closer to us. God's already with us. God already is present. But we're drawing near him, allowing him to change us. If we don't learn this, then what happens is we keep changing the moments, we keep chasing entertainment, we keep chasing vacations, or whatever else that might be in order to find joy, only to discover that joy can't be commanded, can't be purchased, and it can't be arranged, at least any true lasting joy. You see, we try to get it through entertainment. We pay someone to make the jokes for us, to tell the stories, to perform dramatic actions, sing songs, but all of that's just temporary. It's a few minutes or a few hours or at most maybe a few days. But that kind of joy doesn't change us. We can't make ourselves truly joyful. But there is something we can do. You see, while well, joy isn't a requirement of Christian discipleship, it is a result of it. It's what comes to us when we're walking in the way of faith and obedience. And in fact, a lot of my material tonight comes from Eugene Peterson's book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, where he, he walks through each of the Psalms of Ascent. And he did this originally to help his congregation learn how to pray learn how to encounter God's presence. So I want us to read Psalm 126, which will be on the screen behind me. And again, this comes from Peterson's own translation of the message. Starting in verse 1. It seemed like a dream too good to be true when God returned Zion's exiles. We laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good fortune. We were the talk of the nations. God was wonderful to them. God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. And now, God, do it again. Bring rains to our drought-stricken lives so those who planted their crops in despair will shout hurrahs at the harvest so those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessing. This psalm shows us that joy is founded In the past, in the present, in the future presence of God. Verse three is the center sentence of this psalm where it says, We are one happy people. And that's said in the the present tense, we are one happy people. And the words on the one side of the center, verses one and two, are in the past tense. And the words on the other side, verses four to six, are in the future tense. In other words, present joy has both a past and a future. It's not about momentary emotion. It's not a spurt of good feelings when the weather's good on the same day that the stocks are good. This type of joy is something deeper and truer and living. So what happened to them that's so wonderful? On almost any page of the Bible, you'll find allusions and stories, and all of them carry a similar message. Stories such as the story of God's people in a long, seemingly endless bondage under the shadows of the Egyptian pyramids and the harsh masters. And then suddenly, without warning, it was over. One day, they're making bricks without straw, And the next, they were running up the far slopes of the Red Sea, singing praises to God. You turn a few pages over, and you have Judges. You turn a few more pages. You have David. You turn a few more pages, and you come to what I believe is the background of this psalm, the Babylonian captivity, in which Israel experienced some of the worst that can come to any of us. There was rape in the streets, cannibalism in the kitchens, neighborhoods reduced to bestiality, a 600-mile forced march across the desert, the taunting mockers of captors, but then incredibly joy. It seemed like a dream too good to be true when God returned Israel's exiles. Each act of God was this impossible miracle. There was no way it could have happened, yet it did. It seemed like a dream, too good to be true, when God returned to Israel's exiles. We laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good fortune. You see, we nurture these memories of laughter and joy by filling our minds with the stories of God's acts. Simply put, joy has a history, it's founded in something. Peterson writes, Joy. Is the verified, repeated experience of those involved in what God is doing. You witness it firsthand. But also on the other side of we are one happy people, verses four to six, you have the future because joy is nurtured by anticipation. So it's one thing to remember, but then it's another thing to anticipate. If the joy-producing acts of God are characteristic of our past as God's people, they will also be characteristic of our future as God's people. There's no reason to think that God's just going to suddenly change His way of working with us. Joy builds on the past, and it borrows from the future. We expect certain things to happen. So there's two hope-filled images here in this verse. The first is bring rains to our drought-stricken lives. The south of Israel, where this would have been written, is a vast desert, which for most part is just bare, baked dry under the sun. But then a sudden rain makes the desert light up with life. And isn't this like our lives? We go through these seasons that just feel like we're just getting by that are dry, that are dull, monotonous, but then suddenly our lives are interrupted by God's invasion of grace. And we light up with life. Secondly, so those who planted their crops in despair will shout hurrahs at the harvest. So those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessing. As any farmer knows, the hard work of sowing seed In what looks like perfectly empty earth, eventually has a time of harvest. So, in other words, the seasons where we suffer, we experience pain and disappointment, it's seed that we sow into God. And we know that there will be a time of harvest. Don't get me or this psalm wrong. These people who wrote it and who sang it, they were no strangers to the dark side. They carried painful memories of exile on their bones and the scars of oppression on their backs. They knew the deserts of their heart and the nights of weeping. They knew what it meant to sow in tears. Laughter doesn't exclude weeping. In fact, what's surprising is I read a lot of uh, biographies of comedians is how much pain is in their past. Christianity isn't escape from sorrow, but although pain and hardship still come, they're not able to drive out the joy of the redeemed. And for any skeptics who are here tonight who might be thinking that it sounds a little sadistic, science has actually shown that when we see the good that comes through suffering, we suffer less. For example, there was a study done and people who spoke about how loss and pain at first seemed like unanswered prayers, but over time caused growth in their lives. They came away believing that God works in us even in the most difficult moments of life. This growth wasn't just an increased capacity to cope with pain, It was also a greater inclination to appreciate and love others in real, tangible ways. So psychologist Viktor Frankl, he calls this a redemptive perspective on suffering. And research has backed up its effectiveness. But what's most striking is that when people experience a prayer going unanswered, or being answered via a redemptive perspective on suffering, the way they pray changes. Prayer becomes less about asking God for something and more about being in God's presence. Praying this way might not change your circumstances, but research and experience show that there's there's a good chance it will change you. Joy is a result of being in God's presence, and prayer is posturing ourselves to encounter God's presence. We often try and eliminate things that hurt. We, we get rid of pain by numbing the nerve ends. We get rid of insecurity by eliminating risks. We get rid of disappointment by depersonalizing our relationships. And then we try and lighten the boredom of such a life by buying joy in the form of entertainment. But there's not a single hint of that in Psalm 126. Joy and laughter is a result of living in the midst of God's great works, in the midst of His presence, by being present to His presence, which we've discussed several times as we come to the table, to be present to God's presence. So what can we do? Well, first, we can live in response to the abundance of God, not under the dictatorship of our own needs. Second, we can live in the presence of a living God, not our own dying selves. Third, we can center ourselves in the God who generously gives and not in our own egos, which greedily grab. And I believe the result of such a life of this is joy, the joy that's expressed in Psalm 126. The Psalm doesn't give us joy as a package or as a formula. But there are a few things it does. It introduces us to the way of discipleship, which results in joy. It encourages us in the way of faith to both experience and share joy. It tells the story of God's acts. It repeats the promises of a God who accompanies his wandering, weeping children until they arrive home, exuberant with arm loads of blessing. And it announces the existence of a people who assemble to worship God and disperse to live, God's, to live to God's glory, whose lives are bordered on one side by memory of God's acts, and the other by hope in God's promises, and who along with whatever else is happening are able to say at the center, we are one happy people.
1: So if we're gonna be
0: people who encounter God's presence, if we're gonna be people filled with joy, I believe we have to be people of prayer. We have to develop a habit of prayer because how will we ever find God in the wilderness if we don't know how to find him here? So in order to help, I want us to try something tonight. I want us to work a little backwards, but I'm gonna hand out some blank cards. And I just ask you to take, take one of them So on the first side, I want you to write a fear, or anxiety, or a burden, or just something you're carrying right now, a weight. And I'm not gonna make you at any time share this with a neighbor, so be as honest as you want because you're the only one that's gonna see it. Then on the back side of the card, write down a time in the past when God showed up, when he came through, when he answered a prayer, or maybe just simply you felt his love. And now, if you're still thinking, take some time and I'll just keep explaining what's gonna happen now because I want to invite you to participate in a prayer station. There's three tables set up around the gym And each of them have an exercise on it. And I just want you to go to one. I'm going to go through what each of them are, and then you can choose which one you'd like to go to. But it's to help us learn how to pray, how to posture ourselves to experience and encounter God's presence. Because the most basic prayer we have is just talking to God. And you just talk to him as you would a close friend. You can tell him about your feelings and wishes and desires and fears and dreams and troubles. But the most important part is to focus on God's love. Thanking God for loving you and your family and friends, community, country, so on. But most of us probably know how to do this. So I've created three different prayer stations that might resonate with you and might just add a different dynamic to your relationship with Christ. So the first one is to write your own psalm or prayer. So for tonight's sake I have Psalm 126 printed on each table, you can grab your own copy. And at that station for writing your own psalm or prayer is just taking Psalm 126 and putting it into your own context, your own time and place. And how would you write it? A sentence looking back? A sentence in the present and a sentence in the future? And and I put it down, a, a quick example that I could think off the top of my head. And I just said, I couldn't believe the joy and relief I felt having encountered you, having you rescue me in the midst of my own dumb decisions on New Year's Eve. I'm sure where I am, I'm supposed to be. I'm fully alive. I know that you will continue to lead me in the days ahead and strengthen me when I'm weak. And rescue me from my dumb decisions yet to be made. That's my own personal one. But for those of you who are inclined to write, um, then go to that prayer station. The second one is praying with the scripture, Lectio Divina. And this one, again, we'll use Psalm 126 for tonight, but in the future, you can use any passage. I wouldn't go too long. But you read the passage three times, and on the first reading, you listen for any words or phrases that resonate with you, that jump off the page, and you don't overthink it. It might be something that echoes with something that happened this past week, or a feeling you've had, and you can just write it down or you can circle it on the page. Then on the second reading, you read with those words and phrases already in mind, and what do you feel? How does the scripture relate to your life circumstances? And be more specific with what resonates with you. You can write this down or pray it quietly, but take time to contemplate the words that are coming to you. And then on the third reading, think about the action you might take in regard to that situation as guided by Scripture. So you can ask the question, God, what are you inviting me to do? Or perhaps, God, what are you inviting me to let go of? And then the third prayer station is centering prayer. And this is kind of a meditation meets prayer. It's about sitting in silent contemplation. There's no goal, no insight to receive, just stillness in the presence of God. So you just start by relaxing and focusing your attention on your breath. Think of each breath as a gift, nourishing you, sustaining you, requiring no effort to receive and you rest your attention on your breath without trying to control it in any way. If any thoughts or feelings come to your mind, just try and recognize them, and then return your attention to your breath. And the one thing that I, that I personally gravitate to in this is if you need help staying focused, you can try adding small intentional movements or vocalizations to help quiet your mind. So for example, you can tap your thumb to your finger and say, like, my God loves me. My God loves me. And sometimes it's just as simple as that to help just focus you in stillness. So no matter which exercise you try, just know it takes time. Don't be hard on yourself. Don't judge yourself. Just relax, be aware, and focus on encountering God's presence. So we're gonna take about 10 minutes to just go to the table. You can grab a sheet if you want and then come back to your chair. But uh, we'll take about 10 minutes and then at the end of the time all lead us in communion.